to the Ortho Eval Pal podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now, for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 256 of the Ortho Eval Pal podcast. I am your host, Paul Marquis, and today we are going to be talking about the five must-dos with early post-op ACLR patients. We're going to be going over the importance of maximizing the extension, reactivating the quadriceps. We'll talk about why patella mobility is so important and go over the best ways to control effusion. And we'll talk about why it is so important to um, control it. And we're also going to be talking about developing good lower extremity control early and so much more. But if you don't mind holding for a moment, we're going to hear a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by MedBridge. Harnessing the power of technology to help you advance your career and improve patient outcomes, MedBridge delivers over 2,000 evidence-based CE courses and more than 7,000 specialized patient exercises available whenever you need them from wherever you are. MedBridge goes beyond CEUs. They're leading the space. From interactive webinars led by top industry leaders to the first ever HEP patient mobile app, MedBridge has taken learning to the next level for over 200,000 PTs, OTs, ATs, SLPs, and nurses, and those they serve. For a limited time, use promo code OEP to receive $175 off your annual subscription. You go into clinic every day to practice at the top of your license and provide the best care to your patients. Yet, Four out of five orthopedists say that note-taking is interfering with patient care. Robin is here to change that. Robin provides ambient virtual scribing that's designed exclusively for orthopedics. Its Robin Assistant device ambiently captures your visits, so you can focus on patients, and Robin Virtual Scribes can deliver more complete clinical notes and codes to your EHR. Visit robin.co slash OEP. That's robin.co slash OEP to learn more. Welcome back, everyone. Oh, it's been quite a day. Beautiful day in northern Maine. Uh, sun's out. Flies are gone. Nice little breeze. Um, it's just been absolutely beautiful. But what happens on these nice days is we just like work like crazy because we don't have too many left. And so we try to get as much done as we can. And unfortunately, this morning while I was repairing a, a tire on my wife's car, which had a nice nail in it, um, I strained a rib and uh, it's been absolutely crazy painful can't cough laugh sneeze so if you find that i'm a little uh, lower toned on my voice today it's probably because i'm having quite a bit of discomfort in my chest uh, from straining to ream out the hole in the tire and then put a plug in it but uh, we got it all accomplished and uh, we got the job done and back on the road so um, today we are going to be talking about ACL reconstruction. We're going to be talking about the most relevant issues. Um, I am going to bring you some experience to this, okay? Um, the other thing you need to remember is that, you know, not only do you use these techniques or these, you know, five must-dos with ACL reconstruction patients, but you can use them with post-meniscectomy patients, meniscus repairs, chondroplasties, total knee arthroplasty, and I'm going to give you a lot of quote-unquote whys about why you're doing what you're doing. So I'm also going to add some videos and um, probably add some links to our previous podcast also. So that is all there to complement our show today. Be sure to check those out, okay? Those will all be in the show notes today. 
If you put these five must-dos, quote-unquote, must-dos in order, um, which you don't need to do, uh, I probably would start with patella mobility. Now, it's very important that that patella moves superiorly, okay, uh, especially when people have a bone patella tendon bone autograph. They have, you know, that middle third of their patella tendon taken out. They have a little bit of their patella taken out, and a little bit of their tibial tubercle is out of there also. And so, therefore, you have part of that extensor mechanism, which is really inflamed. Uh, it's going to scar down, really. That's the idea, to fill that gap. Um, and, you know, with some immobilization after, some people immobilize them for a long time, some people don't. But what can happen is you can develop a patella infera syndrome, uh, where the inferior patella becomes really stiff and scarred down, and the patella doesn't migrate superiorly very well. Um, and you can also develop some retinacular tightness around the kneecap. And um, it can be pretty significant and pretty limiting down the road. So I'm a huge advocate of patella mobility, uh, not only superiorly gliding the patella with a low load, long duration stretch, but medially gliding the patella. And the reason I say that is because when somebody has an effusion in the knee, the first of the quad muscles to shut down is your VMO. And when that VMO shuts down, you're not getting that nice medial gliding of the patella anymore. Okay, so now the patella starts to migrate laterally. And what do we end up with? A lateral patella compression syndrome or, you know, patella femoral dysfunction. And so I like to prevent that lateral side from tightening up. So I really do a nice low, low, long duration stretch medially. Seems to work really well. The other thing it does is it helps to bring comfort to the patient. Um, when you're working on that kneecap, you get a chance to talk to them. They get a chance to relax a little bit. Um, they, they start to know that, you know what, this is safe to do. It's okay that we start to manipulate this knee a little bit and start to move it. And um, it just really helps to set the scene for what's going to happen next. Um, and so number two in our list today would be working on maximizing knee extension. And this is, when I say this, I mean passively to start with, okay? Effusion alone can cause your knee to flex, okay? So we all know that if you take a syringe and you just fill that knee joint with fluid, it is going to automatically go into the loose pack position, which is about 20 to 25 degrees of knee flexion. And it's going to want to stay in that flex position. The other thing that happens after ACL surgery is that there is this sense of security by keeping the knee flexed a little bit so you can co-contract the hamstring and the quad together better. Some people feel a sense of instability if they go too far into extension. So they just take up this knee flexed posture. And so we really want to optimize that extension. Some people will sleep with a pillow under their knee alone and not under the whole leg. So they end up sleeping in this flex position for a really long period of time. So that posterior capsule becomes really tight. The hamstrings become shortened. And then they just don't like to extend that knee very well. Um, so we know that patients can contract their quads better as they get closer to full extension. I've even done some of these. And you know what? I think I'll even do a video of this sometime with a patient where what I do is I take biofeedback and I put it over the VMO. And uh, let's say they have that flexed knee, lots of effusion. They have a difficult time getting that leg extended. What I'll do is I'll have them do a couple quad sets just for demonstration purposes. And you'll see that that biofeedback is barely activating. Then what I'll do is I'll just stop them from doing quad sets I will put them um, into some gravity-assisted knee extension exercises. I'll load that knee. Um, I might 
elevate that ankle a little bit, load that knee with 15 to 20 pounds. So the weight is above the knee and below the knee. And just for a low load, long duration, depending on their tolerance, I'll go anywhere from two to five minutes at a time. Do that over the course of 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, and then they start to fall into extension better. I am not a big advocate of letting that leg hang off the edge of the table while you're prone and putting a weight on it. Those hamstrings are trying to hold you back. They're not really getting a good stretch. So uh, being in the seated position with gravity-assisted knee extension, you know, adding weight or using a, an extension board, we also have the Maxim uh, knee extension machine. It works really, really well. But getting that extension is important. Then what I do is after 15, 20 minutes, I get them extended better. Then I throw that biofeedback back on them to find that they can considerably contract that quad better. It's like it's like somebody turned the switch on. So getting into better extension will get that quad to fire on a little bit better. So super important that we get knee extension. Flexion comes along, okay? I mean, it's very rare that somebody doesn't gain their flexion unless they've had like a total knee replacement and they're diabetic and maybe they're not controlling their um, their insulin and whatnot. Um, they will stay flared up and swollen and inflamed and they won't flex very well. But with ACLs, typically those people will, will gain their flexion flexion nicely, but not everybody will gain that extension. And I'll tell you, once you get into the twilight zone of four to six weeks and they don't have full extension, it's a little too late to start trying to get it. Okay. Um, and then they may ambulate with a flexed knee posture for a long time. That's That could predispose them to patellofemoral dysfunction and all kinds of other issues. I mean, it just throws your gait off completely and just messes up the whole chain. So um, get that extension early on. Okay, super important. And I have probably six or seven videos on how to optimize extension. So be sure to check those out. I'll throw a few of them into the show notes today. Next thing, number three, we want to um, turn on the quads. And I'm going to jump on my little experience box here just to let you know that, you know, 30 years ago when we were treating ACL patients, we had them on isokinetics. We were pushing hard into full extension from 30 to zero degrees and really firing up that quad. And everybody back then had bone patella tendon bone autographs. I mean, that's what it was. That was the surgery of choice. And uh, we were seeing tons of them. And we were pushing them into full extension, really firing that quad up, doing it early. And we were having excellent results. Okay. Then insurances started to get involved and they started to say, well, we have limited visits that we're going to allow you. Um, people started to uh, have, you know, allografts and we started to see some difficulty with that. We also, uh, the research was really going toward, you cannot do knee extensions from 30 to zero degrees. That's going to stretch the graph and it would be detrimental to the patient. So we started following along with that evidence and guess what? Now, the evidence is turning back toward we need better quads. We need them earlier. We need to optimize that extension. We can fully extend 30 to 0 degrees. Now, I wouldn't do that with 150 pounds week two. But definitely starting with full knee extension, terminal knee, long arc quad type activities. I would do it with blood flow restriction training. Start with some light weights. Get that leg activated. You're not going to stretch that ACL out. Um, and people will do much better with an early quad activation than trying to get it down the road. And I've seen people, I kid you not, at six to eight weeks, not able to do a quad set. Um, just because they have just not worked that open chain. 
they end up in our clinic and then we have to kind of start from scratch and just get back to crawling before walking and then walking before running um, and then just get back to the basics. Uh, and so how do we get that quad to fire off early? Well, I like to do patella facilitation. So patient may be there. I put a little roll under their knee to start with just so that they can learn how to turn it on better. So when they're ready to do their quad set, what I do is I take that patella and I move it superiorly, inferiorly, superiorly, inferiorly. And then when I get to the inferior push, when I'm giving them a stretch of their quad, I say go and they contract their quad and they get a little stretch reflex going there to tighten up that quad better. I might keep that roll under there for 10 repetitions. Then take the rollout and try to push down into the table and really work on that. Now, if I'm not having very good luck with that, I might throw some biofeedback on there. And I love biofeedback because the patient can really see in real time how well that quad is contracting. I might even throw it on their good leg just to prove to them that they are able to contract their quad. They just are thinking about it and can't do it because they have reflex inhibition and that shuts the quad down. And uh, so we don't see this in the hamstrings and in many other muscle groups as much as we do in the quads. Okay. So it's important that we turn those on. So a good quad set is super, super important. Okay. With a good quad set, you have better extension. You prevent patella infera because it keeps that kneecap riding superiorly nicely. Um, they get better leg control. They start to walk better. Um, it improves their independence. So really, getting a great quad set early on, maximizing extension is you know right where you want to be. Number four, developing better leg control. So once you have developed a good quad contraction, you want to start to be able to lift that leg and move it around. Okay. If a patient is coming into your office at three weeks and they are lifting their leg with their hands to get them, you know, to get it onto the table or off of the table or to move around, we're in trouble. Okay. They really should have good leg control within the first week. They should be able to do a straight leg raise. The way I like to do a straight leg raise is, um, if they're having a hard time, I've had them start with their quad sets first. I'll then do an active assistive, you know, straight leg raise in the supine position with the opposite knee bent. Just take a little pressure off the back and just help them kind of get into a more supported position. Now, I will assist them. Once they can start to do it on their own, though, I do a three-point straight leg raise. So I don't just lift that leg up in the air and back down and up in the air and back down. I have them tighten their quad before they lift. Then they lift till their thigh is even with the other thigh. Okay, because the other side is they have the knee bent. Then I have them contract again and try to get better extension. Okay, then they come halfway down during their straight leg raise. I have them stop there. I have them contract that quad again and really fire it up better. Okay, and then let it all the way down and turn the quad off. Because it's really not about how strong you can make that contraction. It's about turning the switch on and turning the switch off early on, correct? So developing better neuromuscular control is super important. So I, it's a, we call it three-point straight leg raise. They, they tighten before they lift. They tighten at the top, and they tighten again halfway down, and then they rest. And then we go through that. Now we start to do straight leg raises in you know, different positions, sideline straight leg raises, prone straight leg raises, adductor straight leg raises. So um, people who develop a better straight leg raise with good control, they will you know, improve their gait a lot faster. They'll get off of crutches faster. And they, you know, like I said, you have to crawl before you walk. You need to have a good quad set before you have a good straight leg raise. You have to have a good straight leg raise before you can walk with some good stability. So, you know, doing it in that pattern is very, very important. All right. And then number five, 
effusion control. This is so, so key. Now, this really, in the physiologic terms, should be number one on our list today. Okay, and could very well be number one. But the problem is, is that we, we just can't get rid of that swelling instantaneously. So what we do know is that effusion, you know, from the surgery and inflammation and swelling and all that stuff, distends the joint capsule. And when we have joint capsule distension, we have considerable reflex inhibition, okay, an inability for that quad to fire up. So they've done studies like way back when, 25, 30 years ago, where they, you know, placed people on uh, a biodex isokinetic machine, they tested their quad strength, and then, you know, they came in a week later, they injected, you know, 20, 30 cc's of saline solution inside the knee joint, caused a distension, mimicked and a fusion, and they had something like a 20% quad weakness, like instantaneously. They couldn't contract that quad as well. So we know that effusion is a big player here, okay? And how often have you seen people and or in their patients who have had like this really large effusion in their knee? Maybe they go for a follow-up with their orthopedic surgeon or see their orthopedic PA, and they do an aspiration of that knee, and the patient gets off the table and it's like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe like how much better it felt. Like my leg wasn't giving out anymore. I was able to straighten it all the way out. I could do a quad set. I could lift it up. Um, you know, everything just felt better. Uh, and, it, you know, effusion is huge. It's a big player here. So it's important that we know that we need to control this. So, you know, what do I, what do, I do to help decrease that effusion as much as possible? Well, you know, we've all talked about the whole rice thing. And then it's led into other acronyms. But really, it comes down to this. Cryotherapy, ice alone on swelling does not get rid of swelling. Okay? Swelling is like 98% water. So all we're doing is freezing it. Now, if you're doing some sort of compression cryotherapy, okay, like cryocuff or something like that, where you're getting the icing and you're getting the compression at the same time, you're going to get much more benefit from that compression, that pumping, than you will from the ice alone. The ice is a pain reliever. It decreases nerve conduction velocity and decreases pain, makes the patient more comfortable, therefore doesn't need as much medication, okay? So there's nothing wrong with icing for pain control, but don't think you're going to ice on a patient's knee while they're sitting there in an upright position just with a plain old ice pack on their knee that will not get rid of their swelling okay two best ways to get rid of swelling is elevation so getting that knee above the heart so if you can get in that in several times a day for half an hour to an hour that's great um, then when you're on your feet having some sort of compression on that knee is also very important so early on I, because they may have you know they, they may still have some stitches there or uh, you know uh, steri strips or whatever and you can't just slide a compression sleeve over them I may start with some coflex um, and I might do a little under wrap first co-flex them. I always start from the mid-calf, work my way up to the mid-thigh. Um, I don't like to compress above the calf. I like to compress at the middle part of the calf. Just decrease that um, that tourniquet-like effect, you know, that could cause a DVT. Um, and then I really try to encourage compression sleeves as much as possible early on. Um, a nice long compression sleeve is very helpful, and I find that to be um, helpful not only with swelling and effusion, but proprioception it's amazing you'll put a compression sleeve on that does not have any hinges on it and the patient will say i feel so much more stable and it's not because we instantaneously got rid of that effusion 
Okay, but they're getting a lot of proprioceptive feedback from the from the sleeve compressing their skin, and whenever they move that knee, they just get better feedback, and so they feel a little bit more stable. So there's a lot to be said, and even the research will show that um, you know compression alone is is very beneficial, um, not only for effusion but for that proprioceptive uh, part of it. So something to take into consideration when you see those patients. Now I know that I prioritize the top five things that you should do with patients right after surgery who you know these patients who have had ACLR um, surgeries but really that's not all you do right when you're in there with your patient there's a lot to do the first couple times you see these folks after surgery but you know gait training is key they've got to be able to get up and down stairs get up out of a seated position they've got to be safe with their crutches Sometimes they have braces. You know, some patients come in with braces. It's really physician-dependent. Sometimes if they have, you know, an added meniscus repair or something like that, they may have a brace on. You may need to adjust that. Uh, You know, getting it on the first time with a bunch of bandages on there is not the same as putting it on a knee that doesn't have a bandage on it. So you may have to snug things up, put it in the right place, make sure the hinges are in the right spot, and that the the restrictions on it are uh, as prescribed in the protocol. So that's important also. Uh, You know, and then jump into some early calf activation and some core activation you know, we need to be stable above and below that knee. And uh, they are very important. We want to get those calves moving. We want to prevent DVT. And so, uh, and then you also want to review a home exercise program, get them doing stuff at home. That's really just as important as what you're doing in the office. So um, I know I gave you a ton of stuff today. I think I've done podcasts probably on each one of these segments. I'll try to add as many of those as I can to the show notes today. I hope that today's episode gives you a better understanding about how to manage early post-op ACL reconstruction patients. Um, More importantly, though, I hope that you understand the quote-unquote why you should do what you do, okay? Like, you shouldn't just ice somebody or, or compress them or do quad sets because that's what the person who taught you there does, Um, You don't just do it because that's what everybody else does. You should have a good reason for why you do that. Because, um, and your patient should do this. Your patient should ask, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why A, B, C, D? Is there an order to this? And you should be able to answer all of those questions. Give them a physiologic reason. Give them an evidence-based reason. And today you can say, I'm giving this to you because of experience, okay? Paul has seen hundreds and hundreds of these. And, um, you know, we learn from our mistakes early on in uh, our careers. And we find what works better And, um, you know, and if we look at the evidence alone, I've been at this for 30 years. I've seen it go full tilt from one extreme to the next and then come back to what we used to do and come back to what used to work for us. Um, So, you know, experience has a lot to be said there. And and, um, I, you know, my experience isn't the only experience out there, but I hope that you find a lot of benefit from that. And uh, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Be kind to each other and take care. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.